You are listening to the Be The Bridge podcast with Latasha Morrison. How are you guys doing today? It's exciting. Each week, Be The Bridge podcast tackles subjects related to race and culture with the goal of bringing understanding. But I'm going to do it in the spirit of love. We believe understanding can move us toward racial healing, racial equity, and racial unity. Latasha Morrison is the founder of Be The Bridge, which is an organization responding to racial brokenness and systemic injustice in our world. This podcast is an extension of our vision to make sure people are no longer conditioned by a racialized society, but grounded in truth. If you have not hit the subscribe button, please do so now. Without further ado, let's begin today's podcast. Oh, and stick around for some important information at the end. Okay. I have to say this. Finally, it has happened to me. <laughs> okay, this has been a long time coming. Finally. <laughs> I'm you, I've never danced on a podcast before. Like, this, see, that was like. But on see? the Be the Bridge podcast, that's how we. Broadcast. Yes. Yes. Uh, I'm so excited to uh, to have you on here. And listen, let me tell you guys, this is going to be a treat. I always tell you that this is a treat. We have Mr. Bridge Builder himself that's out here in these streets doing it. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I think the one who has the organization oh is the Bridge Builder. Okay, 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 okay. Well, I am so excited to have... Um, Reverend Doctor, I, I, I was like, I gotta say both of them. Reverend Doctor, Mr. Esau <laughs> McCulley, um, and I, I'm, I'm gonna introduce you guys to um, to um, Dr. Esau McCulley. And I'm listen. We we saw we've seen each other in different circles. He's met a lot of Be the Bridge people in different circles, and we were up at Courageous Conversations. And yeah. guess what he did? He come, came up and said, wait a minute. Why haven't I been on the Be The Bridge podcast? I, I try not to be too thirsty. I try to let everybody live. I try to do my own thing. I don't try to, like, please put me on. Yeah. But I said, you know, I'm not going to play it off. I'm like, Latasha, I've been putting in work, Latasha. Exactly. <laughs> He's like, what's what? up? And, and, and so um, Lauren is like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We done, we done set the invitation. Y'all guys done ignored the invitation. Nah. <laughs> he said, my son heard you speak. You know, you done met yeah. my son, my wife, everyone. But what about me? I was, I was in Bristol, Tennessee yesterday, two okay. days ago. And someone came up to me and said, you know, I'm really excited to hear you speak. But what I really want to let you know, I run, I'm a part, she doesn't breathe the bridge in her, in her church. Oh, I'm wow. like, she, everybody, like the amount of people who yes. come to events that I do, who were first introduced to racial reconciliation and justice stuff through Be The Bridge. I mean, you were in these streets, you everywhere. I get more than <laughs> I get anything else. Yeah, look at God move. And it's just no matter where you are, like I, I know a lot of our Be The Bridge impact, we're in over 50, you know, 50 states and then also including like 13 countries. And so a lot of times it's the own ramping for people. It is yeah. the um, introduction. And so we recommend, we have a list of books that we recommend. And so like those of you who are out there, you know, once we've like viewed a book and we're like, Hey, this is helpful for our community. We put it on our list. And so 
This is why you're here because so much of what you've written, we use it with your articles that you're writing. We follow you. We stalking you. We doing all those things. Look at this. But I got to tell the audience this funny story. So I spoke at a school that um, that your son attends and we were we were having this dialogue and they were asking questions. And so um, your your son, I didn't know it was your son at that time. He um, he said, "Okay, what kind of books are you reading? What books are you reading, you know, that you would recommend um, to us? And so, you know, you're talking to, you know, a group of like middle school and high school students. So, um, you know, so I'm looking for like, you know, books that can, you know, that they can understand. So I said a few books and he looks at me and he said, I I said, he said, oh, well, I'm reading, um, um, Look, I can't, I can't even, he, he said, he said, um, he said, reading while black. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, that's pretty serious. <laughs> like, like that, you know, I, I wasn't thinking like middle of high school. I was like, really? You're, you're reading, reading while black. He said, I said, so what made you, how did you hear about that book? You know, he said, well, you know, I kind of had to, cause it's my dad. I was like, oh. <laughs> oh, he name dropped me. I can't believe that. But listen. It was so cute, and I loved it. I was like, "That's right, rep your dad up in here." He's yeah. like, "Put him on the list." He listen, he not that moment. <laughs> He's like, "He mad because you didn't recommend." He wanted you to recommend it. He came yes. up to you. Yes, he was. He was like, "Okay, she gonna recommend my dad's book." Well, I'm let everybody know. Um, reading while black, you need to get it. Get a copy. Get your copy. Today. I'll tell. I'll tell you one story. My my younger kid. So we're at church one day. And um, she was coming out of the bathroom or something. She runs, she ran in at someone. And she says, um, you know, my dad wrote a book. <laughs> and the guy, go, the, the guy goes, yeah, reading my black. She goes, no, not that one. <laughs> Josie Johnson, Aaron, the Holy Spirit, the one about me. <laughs> <laughs> because one of, the, one of my, my children's books is the fictional account of a dad who takes his daughter to the beauty shop. She's not thinking about reading my black. She said, I ain't in that book. I'm in Josie Johnson. <laughs> Exactly. That's the only one that I recognize the hero is the one that I met. We, we, we sometimes we'll go when we'll do like book signings. She would sit there and sign the book too. She's like, I'm in the book, so I need to sign it. So there's about 10 people who walk in the streets of America with a Josie Johnson hair and the Holy Spirit book that is signed by me and my daughter. She, I love she it. Talk, I love it. She about she royalties. <laughs> she tried to eat. See, but you're training them right. You you yeah. are raising them right. Like, <laughs> I love it. I'm so excited to have you here. And so for those of you who don't know, now you know, okay? Yes. Um, <laughs> um, um, Dr. Esau um, is Associate Professor of New Testament at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. Um, he is the author of many books, including Sharing in His, The Son's Inheritance, and the children's book that he just missed, mentioned, um, um, Josie Johnson's Hair. Is it Josie? Josie, yeah. Yeah, Josie Johnson's Hair and the Holy Spirit. His book, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope, won numerous awards, including Christianity's Today Book of the Year. His latest project is his memoir entitled How Far to the Promised Land. One Family's Story of Hope and Survival in the American South. Um, He is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. 
His writings have also appeared in places such as The Atlantic, Washington Post, Christianity Today. He is married to Mandy, a pediatrician and Navy reservist. Together, they have four wonderful children who we just talked about, who have a whole personality that I think he needs to have them write a book. (laughs) I love it. And look, they probably can, right? I love the fact that in that way, especially when you're dealing with teens, that was also your son's way of saying, hey, my dad does something similar. I'm proud of him. I want you to know about him just in case you don't. The the crazy thing is he wasn't saying any of that to me. If I had to ask him, had he read it, he's like, I don't know. What what book he wrote? <laughs> he's like, what, what, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Oh, my goodness. It's been a busy season for you. Yes, it has. It has. It's, so what is what is going on? You you um you just released um this um beautiful book and I I, I want to talk a, a little bit about that. I know we're going to talk a lot about some Advent. We're coming into Advent season yeah. and we're going to talk yeah. about that. But I I would be remiss if we didn't talk about how far to the promised land because yes, there was something you um, wrote about that I also just wrote about and I think this is the thing where the light bulb goes off in people. You said that you were the first person, just like as myself, in your immediate family between your parents, born with a full set of rights. Yeah. I want want our audience to hear that. And and if you don't mind, um, you know, you can say your age because I want them to, sometimes people, you know, we're thinking these things are, um, you know, centuries ago or decades ago, but the yeah. impact of systemic yeah. racism is up yeah. close and personal with people that you know. And a lot of times we just don't talk about it, you know? And so yeah. I, want, yeah. I, want, I want to jump right in with that. <laughs> Yeah, let, let me let me let me set the stage, and then I'll, okay. I'll, I'll talk a little about that particular point because it's a key okay. element of the book. So, my father died in 2017 in, mm-hmm. a, in a single car accident. He's a truck driver, and he was coming back from California, and he was heading back to the south. And mm-hmm. when when he passed, my family quickly um, turned to me and asked me to do the, to do the eulogy. Okay, and that was a little bit complicated because I didn't know my father growing up. He had been in and out of our family. And anyone who's ever done a eulogy, you know, you have to sit down with the members of the family to find out about who they were. And if you're a, a clergy person like me, you're not just talking about their life. You're trying to put their life in the wider context of what God is up to in the world. Right. And so what began as, so I sat down with like my, the people and his, and his siblings who were still alive, he began to ask about his childhood and his life and to figure out who he was because we never had these conversations. And what began as a study of his life expanded out into a study of the people who I didn't know because we weren't connected, like my grandparents and then mm-hmm. my great-grandparents. And it became an, an analysis of kind of Black life in the South over the course of generations because some things that only seem to make sense like um, in our our lives take on a whole new meaning when we, when we take it back a step. And so this is the reason what relates to systemic racism. And right. I'll give you one example. My grandfather um, was a tenant farmer. Mm-hmm. Four years old, he, he started work on the tenant farm. He's picking cotton. And he said that he said that during the the every year they get to the end of the year, he's working as a tenant farmer. His grandfather who was who was caring for him, he would come to the end of the year, and the guy's name was Ruben Miller, who would say, you know what? You just broke even. Mm-hmm. And so no matter what happened, he was economically exploited and he wasn't making any money. Now, the the work that he did 
paid for the education and lifestyle of the kids of Rube Miller, who had money, food, clothes. And as a matter of fact, they would pull them out of school. They'll pull them out of school to harvest the crops. And so by the time my father gets to his freshman year in high school, he's like 16, 17 years old. And he realizes, I'm going to be 20 years, 21 years old by the time I graduate. So he has to, to leave school to begin to take care of his family because he's now a grown man. So why is my grandfather undereducated? My grandfather's undereducated because of Jim Crow yeah. and because of the ways in which society economically exploited him. I remember asking him um, when we sat down and had a conversation, uh, well, what was it like when Brown went to Board of Education passed? We all know this, it's this amazing event. And I remember the, the, when I used to read in my history books, they had that picture of the girl who's sitting beside her mom and it says, you know, segregation ends. And I just thought black people got free. And I said, granddad, what was it like when Brown versus Board of Education passed? Did you celebrate? What did you do? And he said, we didn't have a radio or a newspaper, so I didn't know. And so there was no integration after Brown versus Board of Education. Mm-hmm. He had massive resistance. And my mom is, doesn't go to integrated schools until the first grade. Yeah. But then you have to imagine the story. What is it like to be a first grade girl in a school that doesn't want you? She tells a story that her name's Laurie, and there's another white girl there in the classroom who's named Laura. And the teacher tells her, I don't want to know the names of two different kids. You're not going to go by the white kid's name. And that mm. my mom went by a different name all the way up until she got her first black teacher in like eighth or ninth grade. So the question is, what kind of education do you receive when mm. your, your presence there is the cause of hostility. She tells a story of wanting to get into this honor society that is one of the keys to get into college. She has straight A's. She has extracurricular activities. And no matter what happens, they, they consistently tell her, because it's an all-white organization, you're not a fit. So the right. question is, my grandfather was, a direct, was directly discriminated against legally. They prevented him from being educated. He was, he was in a segregated school. Yeah. My mom went to a functionally integrated school system that often didn't want her around. Mm-hmm. And we all know the biggest predictor of the academic success of children is the yeah. academic attainment of their parents. Yes. So I then was, was, was disadvantaged by the government mm-hmm. in my mom's case and my grandparents' case. It's when I say, like, I was the first person in my family who went to schools that from the beginning, there was no legalized segregation or discrimination that's true. But I, and I, I don't want to go too far into this, but, but I'm born and I go to the exact same school my mom goes to. But once the schools are integrated, it's redlined and all of the money leaves the community. Mm-hmm. So no, I'm, I, I enter into a school system that bears the economic stamp of white flight after integration. And so, yes, I technically had a, a completely integrated school experience, but I was now economically disadvantaged. And this is the last part of that story because I could talk about my school forever. (laughs) They tore the school down. Mm. They tore the school down about three or four years ago and and as a part of gentrification. Mm. And now what that all-black school was is a white neighborhood where Mm. the housing is expensive and none of the black people can afford to live there for the most part. And I went to the place where I used to play football and where my old football field was was a playground. And in the playground, there were no black kids anywhere. And so you're seeing the entire economic cycle of segregation, um, integration, um, economic um, kind of devastation, gentrification, 
rising taxes and costs, and then driving the black people out all in the context of my particular neighborhood. And that's some of the things I try to explore in How Far to the Promised Land. Like, what is it like for a Black family over generations yeah. to try to make their way in America? Sorry that was long, but that's... that's no, that's, 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 I love it. I love it. And this is the thing. People need to have that um, understanding because one thing, we don't learn about it in schools and it gives people context, context yeah. for what we're dealing with now in our community, as we're looking at the wealth gap, as we're looking at so many different um, statistics. And then also it allows people to see and understand generationally what has happened in their cities and in their states. And I mean, like when you're telling this story, I'm like, this could be my story. <laughs> you know, like this, you know, yeah. this is my dad's story. So many of us in the South have experienced that and the legacy of that still lives on. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot about, you know, we, there are different types of books in the world. Mm-hmm. There's certain types of books in reading while black has some of them where you make kind of arguments, sometimes based upon Bible, sometimes based upon statistical analysis. But what I really right. want to do is say, okay, we, these books exist. What happens when you tell the story of a family over the course of three generations? Because what, mm. I, what, I, what I've come to see is that if you're poor, black, and Southern, all of American history kind of drops in your lap. Right. When you have money and resources, you can kind of move away from it. You can say, you know what? I don't like poverty, so I can just move where there's no homeless people. Right. I don't like violence, so I can move where there's no danger. But if mm. you're poor and Jim Crow exists and you're black, then you're subject to all the racial discrimination that happens in America. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's parts of my family that goes north, you know, mm-hmm. in the Great Migration. He says, you know what? I can't deal with this. Because poverty removes all insulation, the weight of history is always sitting in our lap. So if you get most poor Black families, they can tell you about Jim Crow, cotton picking, segregation, integration, economic, you know, um, exploitation, you can, they can talk about the war on drugs. All of these things happen to us, not just in history books. And I thought about telling a story of a particular family. It mm. might help people to see things in a way that something like a detailed argument um, might not be able to communicate. Right, because we can't deny stories, lived experiences, yeah. and but some yeah. people still will. <laughs> they will. No, they still, will. I, 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 I try. I try to ask this question, and maybe when you're from Alabama, it becomes a, a little bit different, and you see it clearly. And I said, okay, in what year could you not run an explicitly racist campaign for political office in the state of Alabama? Mm. You definitely could do it in the '60s. Yeah, probably many of the '70s. I mean, explicitly, mm-hmm. um, and you maybe get into the '80s before you have to at least pretend to kind of have justice. Mm-hmm. Or you can ask this question. In what year can a black person anywhere in Alabama, any rural small town, feel comfortable going to vote? Mm. And so those kinds of questions really began to clarify what we're talking about. I'm not saying that every single part of the country is exactly like rural Alabama. I'm saying that like some of the places where we live, that the distribution of democracy is unequal. Yeah. And are we comfortable? Are we comfortable with that? And yeah. so what, what I was trying to get at was saying, look at what's happening to my family. And are we comfortable in a country that demands these, this kind of exceptionalism just, just to survive? Yeah. And then in, in, the, in the context of it as a Christian, I'm asking, well, where is God in the midst of all of this? Mm. 
Well, half part of the promising is just a book about like racism. But because I'm black and I'm Southern, I have to make sense of the question of God yeah. in the context of anti-black racism. In other words, some people might, you know, have intellectual questions about the goodness of God and some abstract concept in the problem of evil. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to make sense of God in the context of a particular evil. And, and coming to groups with whether or not the God who made the heavens and the earth cares about what's happening to people in this country. And I concluded that he did. I concluded that the God who I encountered in the Bible, that's one of the things that comes across in the book, actually cares about the stepped on peoples of the world. And so it is a book that deals with issues of race across generations, but it also deals to the people who are in my family who are trying to make sense of God in that context. And a lot of Black Mm. Christianity is specifically trying to make sense of the goodness of God in a country in which people who claim belief in that same God don't always treat us in the way that we deserve to be treated. Right, right. And and that has a major generational impact on um, not just us as individuals, but as a community, as a collective, uh, because a lot of people are still uh, wrestling with that same question, you know, um, where is God? You know, and so, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say that um, there's different traditions that have kind of central animating themes. So mm-hmm. if you look at kind of the Protestant tradition, broadly speaking, it, the Reformation is this big event where, you know, how do I find a just God? So justification, right. how we make sense of what it means to be right with God, is an, mm-hmm. is an animated issue in Protestantism. Now, I don't want to mm-hmm. say that the Black church doesn't care about justification because it clearly does. But right. that's actually not the animating issue of what happens in the Black church. The Black right. Church in America is born in the context of legalized slavery. The, the most paradigmatic example of structural injustice that, have ever, that has ever been existed, right? Mm-hmm. And, there, and, and that injustice is being perpetrated by Christians. Mm-hmm. And so the first question that the Black Christians have to answer is, how do I make sense of being a person of faith when I'm deeply disappointed with other people of faith? Mm-hmm. So theodicy, the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, yeah is a central theme in Black Christian spirituality. And that's the reason why it's in our music. That's the reason our music has a certain yeah. pathos. Yeah. Because our singing is an attempt to make sense of that, 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 that struggle. Yeah. And in every generation, in every generation, yeah. one of the role of Black theologians and, and Black pastors and Black musicians is to articulate the goodness of God despite mm. the wrong that people do. And so we're always, in other words, like we're always wrestling with this same issue over and over again. It puts a unique spin on kind of black Christian spirituality. That it, it is, it is yeah. um, always wrestling with the odyssey. But, and here's the other thing. This is why Breathe the Bridge becomes important. Mm. It's always what we might consider political. What I mean by that, we never had the luxury to simply think about matters spiritual. Because slavery mm. was a legal issue, not just a moral issue. Yeah. And exactly. so we have to say either God cares about the flourishing of black people in America, such that the laws need to change, or God is okay with it. And for the most part, the black church concluded, yeah, God cares about the things that are happening to us. So the laws that exist in the country vis-a-vis slavery need to change. And so there's the, there's a combination of... Yeah. Um, spirituality and 
advocacy. And this is the last thing, and, and, I, and I'll say this about Be The Bridge. This is why y'all, this is why y'all are so important. This is why y'all are so important. <laughs> this, this is true. This is true. This yeah. is true. One of the miracles of what you see when the Black church is founded, something like the AME, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, they are mm-hmm. not inherently separatist. And what I mean by that is you would think that Black denominations that are founded would want no kind of reconciliation. They would kind of go over to the side. But for example, right. AME's founding motto is God, our father, Christ, our brother, humanity, our family. So they're saying, mm-hmm. oh, we can be a family. We can be a family. Yeah. We can be reconciled. But that reconciliation yeah. must be rooted in justice. And so what Be the Bridge is doing is actually a part of one of the miracles of um, Black Christianity, which actually shows the ways in which the gospel impacted African peoples when they heard it. Yes. What the gospel did to them said to, caused them to say two things. One, I am I am a child of God. I'm made yeah. in the image of God, and I deserve dignity, respect, and honor, and you can't treat yeah. me anyway. Exactly. But because the gospel opens up the possibility of forgiveness and reconciliation, if you treat us right, we can have hope. Mm-hmm. We can be a family. And so yeah. the black church never completely gives up the possibility of inter to, to be a, a part of the family of God. Blacks, mm-hmm. whites, I mean, they don't have the full multi-ethnic, because um, you're in the South in the 1800s, yeah. the black yeah. white binary. But at the time, it, we can say we can be a multiracial society. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and if you look at the start of a, a lot of the denominations, it was, you know, formed in the sense of not because I I dislike you and we're going to do our own, like you were saying, but it was because you are not allowing me to worship, but my desire yeah. is to worship and be in the family of God. But because I can't, and I want to be respected and treated with dignity in the house of God, in the family of God, then, you know, we're going to have to form, you know, the missionary Baptist or the AME Nearly every Black denomination was formed in part because um, mistreatment and persecution. And they said, we're exactly. forming precisely because we want to be Christians, not because we want to be separate. The only exactly. the only distinction is the Pentecostals. The Church of God in Christ, Kojic, was actually the first denomination. The Black one was first. And what became the Assemblies of God actually leaves the Black denomination. In other words, most of the time, the Black churches left. In mm-hmm. the context of the Pentecostals, Actually, the the, 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 the the Pentecostal tradition was multiracial at its beginning. And then right. when segregation happened, the white churches left. An example of this is my own in my own family. I talk about my grandfather, mm-hmm. who was um, a pastor. He has this big role in my life, and he plays an important mm-hmm. role in the book. But he is a member of the Cumberland Presbyterian denomination. Mm-hmm. But he's a part of the black one. The mm-hmm. people who own my great, my ancestors were actually ministers in the white Cumberland Presbyterian denomination. Mm. So once we got off, once we got free, we said, you know, thank you for this. We're going to go and do something else. And right. so this idea that, and, and, the, um, and I, I don't want to go too far into this, but my, the ancestors who owned my grandfather on the bone plantation, mm-hmm. he was a part of the Confederacy and he was, he was, he supported the civil war and he was a Klansman mm-hmm. and he was a minister. Yeah. Say right. it again. I, mean, <laughs> I, I want you to repeat that because this is how entangled when we're looking at Christianity. He was, you could go, yeah. You can, you can go and look him up. So this is all, this is all public record. I wrote a yeah. book called, not a book, it's in an article 
how, how the faith of the cotton field shaped me. Yes. The person, the man's name was Matthew Bone. He was a famous Presbyterian pastor who's actually remembered, you can Google his name, he's remembered in the denomination of being this great preacher. Mm-hmm. He was also a member of the Klan. He also supported the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. And the people who were called the Bones on my who own my ancestors, there's actually a record. This is crazy. There's a written record of what happened to the Emancipation Proclamation comes to the plantation where my ancestors lived. If you can find the documents. And there's, there's actually, the amazing part about all of this is there's two accounts of this. There's an account that says, hmm. written by the, um, the, the enslaver who says the, the black slaves didn't want to leave. And they, they, they like did all of this stuff to stay. But there's an account by my family that says, mm-hmm. They didn't stay. Like, we left. And the records show that my, my great, great, great granddad actually does leave, but he, and he buys a plot of land. He becomes a tenant farmer, eventually gets stolen from him. But it's from that man who left, right, who, who bought his own land right. that the, the ministers from my family come from. In other words, we get free. We buy our own land. We worship God for ourselves. And we eventually join the black version of the denomination. And so all of that is saying we, my ancestors began to see the problem isn't the God that is articulated, right? right. The problem is the way that, 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 that the way that y'all worship this God and what you think the implications of this faith are are fundamentally different. And so you have two people separated mm-hmm. by 100 years, my grandfather and Matthew Bone, both of whom are famous preachers in the same area, in the same denomination mm-hmm. or same tradition, a black one and a white one. And my grandfather is one who is the mm. is the one who I think has the tremendous impact still in our city because he preached the holistic gospel. 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 If you've been enjoying and learning from the Be the Bridge podcast, we invite you to join us in this work. You can support and sustain our mission as a recurring partner at bethebridge.com forward slash give. You can also help spread this word of bridge building by supporting and really sporting our apparel. So if you haven't gotten your Be The Bridge hat, sweatshirt, all of the things, let's take the message to the street. Visit our online store at shop.bethebridge.com and make sure we're spreading the word about all the work that Be The Bridge is doing and will do. At Be The Bridge, we're doing the work to empower people and culture toward racial healing, racial equity, and racial reconciliation. And this work is only possible because of the generosity of bridge builders like you. So thank you so much for those of you who are listening and sharing our podcast, sharing our polls, those of you who are giving to this work um, that's helping us create resources and material um, that will transform hearts. Um, So join us at bethebridge.com forward slash give and let's continue to build bridges together. Thank you so much. the way that y'all worship this God and what you think the implications of this faith are are fundamentally different. And so you have two people separated by a hundred years, my grandfather and Matthew Bone, both of whom are famous preachers in the same area, in the same denomination or same tradition, 
a black one and a white one. And my grandfather is one who is the is the one who I think has the tremendous impact still in our city because he preached the holistic gospel. The church, we have not reckoned with that, you know, and, you know, part of this, you know, makes you like lament, you know, that still here we are in 2023 and there's still this resistance and this this yeah. cover up. Like, why do we have to keep, you know, I know there's even maybe somebody listening to this right now. It's like, why do we have to keep talking about this? Why do we have to keep bringing this up? Why can't we just move forward? Why can't we just move forward? And I'm just, I, I, I want to take the my time to say this. Because my, because, my still because my grandfather's still alive. Because my grandfather's still alive. Yeah. Your grandfather's still alive. My grandfather just passed. This is recent history. And then I always think when people make those comments, if you're tired of hearing about it, imagine what it is to live it. Yeah. You know, like how tired do you think we are of talking about it and living it? If you're tired of hearing, the least you can do is listen. (laughs) The least you can do is listen. One of the things that I think it's it's a failure of imagination. Yeah. And sometimes what I mean by that is that we can assume that the glory of God is tied to American innocence. Mm. And what about what I mean by that is <laughs> you, like part of their faith, part of their faith in the security mm. is what the church did wasn't so bad. Because if what the church did was really bad, then maybe God is less good. Mm. But what one of the black churches gifts to the to to the culture is to say, no. The glory of God is found in the fact that despite the evil that people do, God was there in the midst of them. Yes. And that's actually the more biblical me- message, right? Because yes, if you look at the is. Old Testament, you don't, God is not glorified because everybody in the, in the, in the, in the Bible got it right. The God is glorified. It's despite the, all of the knuckleheads that was running around in the Bible, yes. God was still accomplishing purposes. And so yes. I think that there's this fear that a deep confession is not something that that that, that Ameri- the American church can survive. And I want to say, no, no, no. You can have a deep confession, a confession. You can completely own your brokenness and say that despite the brokenness, God was at work. And you could do that without normalizing the brokenness or saying that things yeah. weren't that bad. Say, no, no. They were precisely as bad as we thought they were. Yeah. But God yeah. was at work. And I, and, I, and I say, I say, you know, what it means is America is not wonderful if Abraham Lincoln wasn't as racist as we know that he was. Right. America is wonderful because Frederick Douglass was there. Yes. Frederick Douglass wasn't either, right? But we need need to learn to tell the story of... Yes, the consciousness, yes. So it's the truth, Frederick Douglass, and, you know, even William Lloyd Garris, all of these people who, in a broken country, that was doing these things, saw the possibility of more. Mm. And if you can tell the story of, we have to tell the American story as light emerging from darkness. Mm. Not necessarily there was no darkness. Right. And it's almost like, and maybe I like to put it this way, and I know America is in Israel, so don't think right. it's like an example right. of the chosen people. I'm making an analogy. Mm-hmm. If you look at what happens in the first part of the Bible before Jesus shows up, it's a mess, right? Right. There are these glorious, perfect people who never make mistakes. But Jesus comes and he is so glorious, it reconfigures the entire narrative. Mm -hmm. Right. He comes into these people and he loves them nonetheless. And in in, in an analogous way, Jesus can come and redeem our histories. 
Yeah. And you know it, what he could do on a personal level, you could start again regardless of the mess that you did. Mm-hmm. Can happen nationally if the church can start again, despite the fact that it's done a bunch of different things. And so mm-hmm. I just want to say, like, repentance exists because it presupposes sin. Mm. And if we can't repent, then we can't experience the fullness of redemption. And and so that's what I'm saying. We just got to learn how to like say, you know what? I messed up. Church messed up, and that's okay because we can we can we can do better and be more. Yeah, I mean, I I don't want us to miss miss that what you just said, you know, about repentance. I want you to repeat that, you know, I if the church know what I can repent. <laughs> you know, church, what, what I'm saying is like. I, I, I think yeah. I think I think it's like if there's there's this you know I got I got kids right I got kids right and it doesn't matter how old the kid is like the moment they get consciousness of what they do they can be completely caught like I can catch them and, and they do not want to admit it because right. no matter how many times I told them I'm going to love you once you confess there's a part of them that says. I can't admit that I went and ate four candy bars, even though you told me not to eat them, right? They just just like, there's no way dad can forgive this. Now, like I would tell them, this we do in our family. So listen, we're in the zone of forgiveness right now. Mm. You can just confess whatever it is you did. And you're like candy. And there's no punishment. All you got to do is like, let yourself just say it, just say it. Mm -hmm. And they, it's so hard for them to admit it. Yeah. And then when they admit it, they kind of say, I was afraid. I said, but you knew I was going to forgive you, right? Yeah. You knew it. And they they give me the hug and we cry and it's great. And I think that sometimes the church can hold on to its sin and it doesn't want to let it go because it believes that either God won't forgive them or maybe that black people won't forgive them. Or something is horrible mm-hmm. is going to happen if we fully acknowledge it. But what I'm saying yeah. is, there's it's so it feels so good after you've done it because yeah. the weight is liberating. It's, it's, it's you know, and and I want to say that like there's parts of the church that are carrying away and they're lying about it, and that's the reason why they get mad, right? The reason you, yeah. you know what you know when you get you know when you caught, and one of the ways you deflect is by anger. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, like, like you can just get offended. And so, like, the the, the sheer anger that's attached to this issue that says, let me forget about the past is, to me, I think, short-sighted because it's getting in the way of healing. Mm. Yeah. There's this, there's this, um, I I talk about this article, I talk about this article, this this letter so much because it captured my imagination. James Pennington. Uh Uh-huh. He, I talk about it all the time. I just can't imagine he did this. I can't imagine yeah. he did it. He, he finds out that his slave master is about to die. The guy who had enslaved him, he had escaped. And he sends a letter to him. He says, hey, man, I heard that you're sick. You're about to die. You're about to die. And he mm-hmm. says, because the guy still has slaves, he said, man, what I want you to do is free the slaves that you have. Because I don't want you to go before your maker with that kind of sin on you. Now, what makes this so amazing is James Pennington said, I forgive you, bro. But what I want is I want you to be free. Like, I'm tr- help me help you. And so this, uh, and, and we don't, I wish we got the letter back, what he said. But the, 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 basic, the basic principle, though, is like, as a Christian, I care about your, you too much to allow you to remain in something. Yeah. It's going yeah. to, like, he said, 
He said, I don't want you to go before the maker of heaven and earth yes. with, the, with, the, with, with shackled black bodies on your spiritual register. Mm. Mm. And I'm like, listen, that's way more Christian than me. Yeah. I don't know if I could have written, you know, like I'm mad at folks who didn't do anything like that. It's, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I'm text back to this day. Like, hey, yeah. man, I'm busy. I'll call you later. But yeah. he's like, no, no, I want better for you. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that that is so glorious about the call for reconciliation. It is yeah. best is not rooted in malice. It's rooted right. in the possibility that the church can be on the other side. We're never yeah. going to talk about Advent, but that's okay. You got to yeah. invite me back. It's, it's, you know, it's so rooted in hope and that and you know and that's as we segue into um into that it's like there's this there's this hope attached to reconciliation where the reason why you're writing is because you want people to know and to understand you want to create yeah. a pathway for re- repentance you want to create an understanding for people to kind of turn away from and to turn back to God you know and it's like that it's like you know, I, I'm understanding as I even as I get older, like how repentance is such a gift because we see yeah. like it's the very thing what you were expressing is why I do what I do is because I love the church, because I love God's people that I want to see them live into a different way. You know, and so that is, you know, that you just really can articulated I, can I tell you, well. Can I tell you so? The book is called How Far to the Promised Land. Right. But there's a passage that's underlying it that's going to get to what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It actually comes from the book of Micah, chapter four. Mm-hmm. And in the book of Micah, there's this passage that one day God's going to call the people back from, from exile. And it says, nation will not take up war against nation anymore. Mm-hmm. And it says, in, in the King James, they will, study, they will study war no more. They will learn war no more. Mm. And everyone, everyone will sit under their vine and fig tree, and there'll be no one to make them afraid. Hmm. And the idea is that one day God's going to end all of the conflict between the nations hmm. and they're going to find a home hmm. where everybody's going to be safe. No more violence, no more battle. And so I couldn't call the book Binding and Fig Tree. I had to call How Far to the Promised Land. Yeah. Because How Far to the Promised Land depicts this idea that what actually Black people want in America is a place to feel safe. Yeah. Where there's no more violence, no yeah. more danger, no more fear where we have access to the whatever our gifts and talent um, are able to acquire for us. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that 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 arrival always feels feel so far away. No matter how far we come, we're always mm-hmm. asking that question, well, how much further is it to the promised land? When, when are we yeah. going to arrive there? And so mm-hmm. by, but, but what I'm saying is, as I, env- I envision that, that arrival mm-hmm. isn't at the expense of everyone. It comes mm-hmm. through the end of war and conflict, mm-hmm. through reconciliation, and so I do think that at, at the heart, and, 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 and there's only there's only one word. Well, there's two words: black and hope. But um, one of the key words that's in reading while black mm-hmm. and um, how far to the promised land is the language mm-hmm. of hope. What is it that that guides us as the pillar of fire um, by night and a cloud by day? Mm. It's this hope that the God who created the universe is the one who will lead us to where we need to be. And yeah. that we might get there, not at the expense of our brothers and sisters, but with our brothers and sisters mm. from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And, that, and that's mm. like, and that's like yeah. a um, hope. And, 
Okay. It's a hope that's not always easy to come by because sometimes the evidence will point in a different direction. Mm. Mm. Wow. I I was when you were just talking about that scripture, Micah, and you um and you said um uh, study war no more. Yeah. And uh when you were just talking about that, the first thing that came to mind was just do you remember the old song? Um, and it, it was like down by the riverside. Yeah. And a part of the line in there, I'm gonna lay down my sword and shield down by the riverside, study war no yeah. more. I ain't I ain't comes. gonna study war no more. Yeah. And, and and it says, I'm gonna talk with the prince of peace. Yes. I ain't gonna study war no more down by the riverside. I'm telling yeah, you, our good. people were <laughs> Oh my goodness! Yeah, that's yeah. one of the things. I, um, man, I can talk to you forever. I can, we we, we got to have you back. Like we, you know, we could we could sit here and talk for for forever. We gotta uh, we gotta do we gotta get you in our, in our academy uh, some kind of way. But um, you also, you know, as we talk about Abbott, you know, yeah, as we are. Um, you know, entering um, in in this season, I think you know, as as we're talking now, and when this um, this podcast would would come out, um, you know, what is you know, is this is a describe to people because I know there's a lot of church tradition, especially like in the African American church tra- tradition. I didn't really hear about Avid until yeah. I was more so. Um, 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 worshiping yeah. and serving in uh, predominantly um, white churches, and why do yeah. you think why do, why do you think that is? And then um, tell um, everyone a little bit w- about what this Advent yeah. season is and why it's important. I will try to be brief. A lot of for a variety okay. of reasons. One of which being yeah. the polity of black churches. A lot of black churches mm-hmm. are Baptistic and Pentecostal, precisely right. because Baptistic polities were independent. And so the white churches could control them. One of the characteristics of um, black, I mean, Baptist traditions is that they don't, they don't follow a liturgical calendar. So what I say to people is you kind of do, you just don't know it. So Christmas and Easter are non-controversial. And so like those are the the remnants of a wider church calendar. And the only Mm -hmm. idea of the church calendar is we walk through key events of the life of Jesus over and over again, to be formed into the life of Christ. Yes. So yeah. by repeating yeah. and remembering, like we remember, we never say, you know what? I'm tired of celebrating the resurrection. No, we celebrate exactly. it. It's a, key, it's a key event, right? No one says, right. man, I'm tired of Christmas. We celebrate Christmas. Well, historically, the church prepared for Christmas by the season of Advent. And mm-hmm. Advent um, has meant two things, right? First of all, it's meant to talk about the hope that the Jewish people had for the Messiah. So mm-hmm. it's looking forward to the coming of Jesus. So you during the normal Advent season, you read a lot of the prophecies, you know, from Isaiah that yeah. look for the coming of this king. And so the first part of Advent is to say, I don't just celebrate something, I, I get ready for it. So you can imagine, like, at least for me, if you are, if it's your birthday or if it's an anniversary, Normally you plan it, right? I mean, I'm going to go out with my friends. I'm going to yeah. get my hair done. I'm going to get a new fit. I'm going to get some new shoes. I'm going to plan 
and prepare for so I can get the full enjoyment. You don't want somebody who just pull up and, you know, they went and got you some roses from the um, from the gas station and they say, happy Valentine's Day. Like, like right. no, I need you to think about right. this, right? And so historically, right. the church said, we're not just going to celebrate Jesus's death or his, or, or his birth. We're going to prepare to celebrate it. So Advent mm. is, a, is a season of spiritual preparation where you reflect yeah. on what does it mean to prepare to celebrate Christmas? Mm-hmm. And then Christmas um, has a season itself where you don't just celebrate it on the day. You celebrate Christmas for 12 days. You know, we talk about birthday week. We yeah. have like 12 days to celebrate Jesus' birth. But yeah. the other thing that's related to Advent, though, is that it kind of has a second element. Mm-hmm. The first element is to say, I need to prepare my heart to fully take in the meaning of the incarnation. Yes. But we also know that Jesus is coming again. There's going to be a second advent. Advent just means to arrive. Mm -hmm. And so there's going to be a second arrival. Jesus is going to come back. And the question is, well, how do I prepare my heart and live my life in such a way that I'm aware Jesus is the eventual return? Because over time, that idea that um, Jesus is going to come back um, slides from the Christian imagination. Now, Paul says something that I just don't know that I have ever really thought in my life. Maybe I ain't that saved yet. Just give me some time. You mean this part, I think it's in Philippians. And Paul says, I really want a desire to depart and be with Jesus, but my desire is to be with you, so I'm going to stay. Now, listen, I, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. I love him. He's a, he's a one. I want to stay. I ain't ready to die. I, I, it would be yeah. a dishonest to say, I want to die today. I'm, right. <laughs> right. And so it's just true. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I understand people are yeah. suffering, but most people don't say, man, I want to die and go and be with Jesus. But I got to stay here yeah. to do ministry. No, no, no. I like it. Yeah, I like my right. kids. I like, yeah. I like my job. And so... Yeah. But Paul literally said, I want you to go and be with Jesus so bad. And so what would it actually mean for me? And, and not only do I not want to die, <laughs> but it sounds bad. I'm not sure I want Jesus to come back tomorrow. <laughs> Sometimes like, he start acting really crazy. Like, you know what? He, maybe you need to come back and fix this, right? But what does yeah, it mean? Yeah, say, yeah, like, Sometimes like, okay, this week you need to come back, but not wait. <laughs> wait till after I get my vacation in. Let me go. Let me go to Santa yeah, Monica. Yeah, like, hold on. <laughs> I I never understood it until you have people say you understand it better by and by. It's like when people yeah. say, "Come, Jesus, come, Holy Spirit!" Like, yeah. um, Jesus, come, you know, come, come, get yeah. us now. And you're like, yeah. "What? Why people uh, want to die?" <laughs> yeah. And so, Advent, yeah. second Advent, the second part of Advent forces you to ask this question: Do I really want Jesus to come and reign? Mm. And if not, what's going on in my heart? And what do I implicitly believe about life? In other words, even though we want to be with Jesus, we can't actually imagine the glory of the life to come, so much so mm. that we fear it. And so how do I then begin to think about saying, I actually want Jesus to come back. I don't want Jesus to come back and establish his kingdom, where mm. they will study war no more. And mm-hmm. so those two realities then is what you learn about as a Christian during Advent. On mm-hmm. one hand, I'm preparing my heart to say, 
what does it mean to believe the world was changed by the advent of God? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to say that we live in a different world because God became a baby? Mm-hmm. You don't just wake up on the 24th and say, hallelujah, you know, thank you for becoming a baby. Mm-hmm. You think about it. And right. in the same way, you say, what does it mean to really desire Jesus's kingdom to come? Mm. If I really believed his kingdom was going to come, how would I live right now? If I really yeah. believed in his coming kingdom, it is going to be a second advent. What would I say about justice, reconciliation, hope, love, faith? Do I actually live in yeah. such a way that says I'm a citizen of a coming kingdom? And so those two tensions, getting ready for baby Jesus yeah. <laughs> and getting ready for King Jesus <laughs> are the elements of advent. Yeah, sweet baby Jesus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I said, like, like, sweet baby brown Jesus. <laughs> yeah. But just, yeah. you know, and um, and just for those of you who are listening, um, if if it's not a part of your, your faith tradition, anybody, um, as a Christian, you know, we can celebrate Advent, we can prepare. Yeah. Um, and it starts the um typically the fourth Sunday um before Christmas, and it lasts for yeah. about four weeks. And so this is a way. Yeah, yeah. So is it what? What did you say? It's four weeks before Christmas. One of the things I say to people is, yeah. I like to make this argument because I know that some people don't, they get afraid. And what I yeah. say to you is that every church has a liturgy, a calendar. Yeah, yeah. And so your church every year probably does a fall kickoff and that's that's rooted in the school system, not the Bible, <laughs> right? Exactly. Why do you start stuff off? Mm-hmm. Or you say, yeah, pastor's anniversary, which is fine, right? But you say we celebrate the pastor um, for stuff, they have Mother's Day. In other words, if we're not careful, um, there will be another calendar that tells us what we should focus on. And there's nothing wrong with saying, yeah. you know what? Over time, Christians have said, you know what? There's certain events in the life of Jesus that are so important we need to prepare for them. Yeah. So there's a season yeah. of preparation before Christmas. That's Advent. There's a season mm-hmm. of preparation for Easter, which is called Lent. We don't just celebrate yeah. Jesus' resurrection. We say, you know what? Mm-hmm. Let's get ready. And here's the other thing. In, in between those two, and you'll like this one. Um, I know you won't invite me for it, but it's okay. I'm going to give you the whole thing. It's Advent, okay. and then Epiphany. You know what Epiphany yes. celebrates? Yeah. Jesus is the life of the nations, right? So, like, you get yeah. you get King Jesus. You get baby Jesus. You get race, race, racial reconciliation and justice yeah. coming to the world. You get yeah. repentance and reparation. You get the celebration of Jesus at, at resurrection. What's wrong with that? How does yeah. go mess you up? Yeah. <laughs> like now, who's hurt from celebrating those things? I don't want to yeah. say it's like, don't be afraid to accept the wisdom of the past and say, maybe Christians who lived before yeah. us had a couple of good ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And I think you have a, um, a series uh, that helps people yeah. walk through this. Yeah. Um, it's called the fullness of time series. Yes. Um, and so he knows what he's talking about because he done wrote about this too. Okay. <laughs> I had I had um friends of mine, they're really short books. There's uh-huh. one on every season of the year. So a friend of mine named yeah. Tisha Ashton Warren, she wrote about Advent. Another friend of mine named Emily McGowan wrote about Christmas. I wrote about Lent. Mm-hmm. Um I mean Rutledge wrote about um Epiphany. And so like there's short hundred page books that help yeah. people make sense of the year. So if you want one of those, you can yeah. go on Google's fullness of time book series and you'll see it. Put it on the Christmas list. You know, like, you know, these are some great memories to make with your children and it makes it not 
about one day, but it makes it more of a lived experience that we're having with um, with Jesus. And I think this is something that I just <laughs> in recent years started to um, you know, make a part of my life. And I think my life is fuller because of it. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's just much better. I think that sometimes we, we, start, we, we start complaining about, oh, the Christmas season is being lost because of this, that, and the other. And that's true. Yes. What you're seeing is the marketers are determining exactly. what's happening. So who says you start celebrating Christmas after, after Halloween? It ain't because folks excited about Jesus. It's Mariah about Carey the- said it. Mariah Carey. <laughs> so who in charge, Mariah Carey or you? You can do exactly. Advent. <laughs> now, I'm going to listen to Mariah. Now. Yeah. I'm not gonna, don't, have, don't have me lying like I'm not going to listen to all the new Christmas songs. But I can at least in my heart say, now you I'm listening to Christmas music. Yeah. And do Advent. But I'll tell you a secret. Like I'm like, first of all, I'm a Christian. I can celebrate Jesus 365 days of the year. I listen to yeah. Christmas music and movies and all the things all year long when I want to. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, I'm going to Christmas tree tomorrow. What you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> listen, <laughs> like, I'm going to put my this weekend. <laughs> after, after Halloween to Black History Month, it's all Christmas. Exactly. It's all all Christmas. Just keep it up. All you got to do is change that. You can change your ornaments in February. You know, you can put some some Black History ornaments on there. (laughs) You need to come up with a whole market around it. (laughs) Black History Christmas. (laughs) Listen, listen. One of the things that... um, um, one of the things you wrote about, and I think this, when we think about what we write about, um, you know, um, reading while black, um, how far to the promised land and just all the different things, the articles and things that you've written, um, in, 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 in your truth challenge that you do, you wrote an article recently, you shared, why am I still a Christian? And I, you know, yeah. I don't know all of your story, but I know, um, you know, yeah. I can only imagine your story as a black man, also in the Anglican church, yeah. um, in academia, yeah. like, you know, um, you know, from, from Alabama now living in Illinois, like I could, like most of us can kind of guess some, some of your yeah. experiences, but you know, our experiences are not monolithic. And so you wrote, um, and you shared about why am I still a Christian? Can you talk about why this is important to you, um, to write yeah. as a lot of people are struggling right now yeah. um, with church yeah. and Christianity? Like I'm, I'm, you know, my, my goddaughter yeah. was, was telling me she's, um, she's 23 and, you know, just the people in her small group, just what, what they're seeing play out in the yeah. church and, and into the world, you know, um, that, that question that a lot of, you know, African-American Christians are are asking are those that are seeking, you know, is Christianity a white man's religion? You know, why are you still a Christian with all of this? How can we still say that God is good? So one of the things that I talked about is that anyone who does racial reconciliation work, knows that a mm-hmm. lot of the leading black intellectuals who talk about race and justice end up becoming agnostic or yeah. atheist. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And some of my favorite yeah. writers had serious yeah. problems with, with um, Christianity. And yeah. it can lead to this idea that um, intellectual progress means a journey away from faith. Mm. And I found myself as an adult who's writing in public about race, realizing like, oh, a lot of people get to this point and make a different decision. 
Mm. And why did I stay a Christian? I had to ask, what, I had to ask myself that question. There's a lot of ways answers I could have given, but what I talked about in that article was, at first we tend to think about Christianity only being useful in so much as, uh, you know, the press becomes these amazing kind of abolitionist kind of war, you know, um, people who, who fought for, the, for justice. But I said, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that's really important is to look at the testimony of the people who themselves were enslaved, the people who lived during the civil rights movement. And their testimony on the whole says, we were able to survive and live lives of dignity because God was with us. And the Christianity yeah. isn't viable just because of the spectacular, but just because of the ordinary glory that arises mm-hmm. in the lives of people. And it's out of that ordinariness that massive movements of racial reconciliation and justice happen. In other words, mm-hmm. I'm not a Christian because Martin Luther King existed. I'm a Christian because all of the people who marched with him, ordinary men and women who who loved their children, who were good worker, who are good um, colleagues, who are deacons and mothers in the church. And that that ability to sustain a people is a testimony to challenge me. And so that I wanted to say something like, in the fullness of time, that dignity give rise to mass movements. It happens in abolitionism, and it happens during the civil rights movement. But in between that, it created a, a, a million beautiful lives yeah. that get into the glory of God. And, and, and in the end, I decided that I didn't simply need something that a tool that was going to use me to critique. I was going to use to critique others. In other words, I didn't simply need a way of saying other people did me wrong. I could figure that out myself. Mm-hmm. I needed something that was going to inspire me to be my best self as well. Mm. So Christianity wasn't wasn't less than a social revolution. I think that it was, but it was more than that. Mm. It was both a social and a personal revolution. And the combination of that, that Jesus both critiques me and the world and gives both of us hope, which allows me to remain um, a Christian. Mm. Mm. What, you know, what has given you, there's so much heaviness in the world. Um, There's a lot of heartache. Um, There's so much that we can focus on that would kind of take, if we put, if we put our focus in that, we can um, it can take the joy out of out of the celebration, but we understand where joy yeah. comes from and where this hope comes from. What is giving you hope um, as we as we are entered into this Christmas season? I think that what gives me hope are ordinary people. Mm. In other words, we can see these big, massive platform people who are doing all kinds of things in the name of God that ain't godly. But I walk in the church every Sunday and there are women, the same women and men who, who there's, a, there's a, the guys who stand out in the cold in Chicago and help us park our cars. Mm-hmm. Here at Progressive Baptist Church is outside of Chicago. They're, yeah. they're the women who, the ushers who greet and hug my daughter every single Sunday. They're the people who volunteer for Sunday school. In other words, sometimes the large evil that we see can drown out the small good. I was in Bristol, Tennessee, like I told you. It's not a huge town, about 50,000 people mm-hmm. in, um, in in Tennessee. And you've never been there. You've never met mm-hmm. this woman who I met there. And she yeah. told me how much she was inspired by your work. Mm-hmm. And so she's over there by herself, not by herself, she's over in a community you've never been to. No, no fanfare, no internet. Like She's not on all over Twitter. She's just doing faithful work. And every mm. single time I go to a city, 
are running the people who are doing that work. And so mm-hmm. what I want to say is God is not hindered by mm-hmm. the sinfulness of people, right? He mm-hmm. He's at work. And when I'm most hopeful is when I can see that. And I, and I, and I know, listen, Martin Luther King is my hero. Like, he's somewhere, but like, Martin Luther King was the only person who changed my life. It was the deacons and the mothers of the church that yeah. I attended every week. They used to come to my football games. They didn't know me. Like, I wasn't their kid. And I took it for granted. What does it mean to love a young black boy so much that you know that his dad's not going to be at the game, so you go and you cheer for him? Mm. And so I want to say is, I know people say all the corruption. Sorry, this is my last point. Most of these pastors ain't rich. Right. Yeah. I know you can see the pastors who you see on television, but I know broke pastors who yeah. do it because they love God. And so yeah. I don't ignore the brokenness of the church, but I also see its ordinary glory. And that's what gives me hope. Mm. Mm. Man, that's that's and, and we and we need that hope, um, not just into the Christmas season, but into um, as we look to 2024. Um, as we can um, gaze upon the goodness of God. I know it's just like, it's so much, you know, but when you talk about the goodness of God, and that's the things where it's the little people doing the big work that sometimes don't have the megaphones, you know, that, you know, they're, they're, um, they're out there, they're in the trenches um, and God is at work. God is moving. And that is the thing where sometimes it seems like the, um, the loudest voices are the majority voices, but I'll I'll put this, can I say, I'll talk about you, Latasha. Okay. (laughs) Everybody, everybody like now probably wants to be your friend. They probably want to help you or this and that and the other. But there was a time before you became Latasha Morrison Mm -hmm. when it didn't benefit those people in your church who helped you. Mm -hmm. And they loved you anyway. And because the people who we never met Mm -hmm. loved you well, your ministry exists. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that what you're doing is important individually, but you're the product of people who they can't see. And right. so as long as there's somebody loving the future Latasha Morrison before I get a chance to meet her, then there's hope in the world. Yeah. And that's what I mean when I say these people matter, not just because of what they do individually, because you never know who's sitting in your Sunday school. Right. right. Somebody taught you. And look at you. You all you you in 13 countries. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. 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 Somebody, somebody poured into you at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And nobody else knows but you. You probably thinking about him right now. When I said who was <laughs> no, it? Don't say I mean, so many people that came up, and I was just thinking about one, um, um, just someone, and I'm I'm gonna say it on here. You know, um, I was just thinking about her because I was looking at her, her video came up in my um my Instagram thing. Yeah. Stream and um, she was. Uh, her name is Bishop Rosie O'Neill, and she's in North yeah. Carolina, Greenville. Um, I became a Christian in college, and that was where the Lord um, kind of planted us and developed us. And she was just an excellent Bible teacher, and um, I got I to see that she was a she's a female, like you know. Yeah. And, and, um, and you said what? It was the church. How the the church was, it was really, a, at that time, I think they weren't like, they may have been maybe 10 years older than than, yeah. than I was. So the church was probably maybe 100 people. So the 100-person church gave um, birth to a ministry 
that serves hundreds of thousands of people? Yeah. Like, yeah. And she's still, you know, she's still there. Yeah. <laughs> so you New York Times bestseller, 13 countries, 50 states from Greenville, North yeah. Carolina, uh, South Carolina or North Carolina, yeah. which one of the Carolinas yeah. it was. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, what? Greenville, yeah. North Carolina, home of the fighting pirates. ECU, purple that's gold. Let's go. <laughs> I got you hyped up. I like this. I, yes. got, this. I, I, I got to. I got to. I, I want. I want to clear out here in these these streets. You know. <laughs> that's um, what I'm talking about, and that's, and that's what gives yeah. me hope. That that's the, those kinds of stories give me yeah. hope. So yeah, people doing good is going to bear fruit that they can't see. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm so grateful for you. I'm so grateful for your your voice. Um, just all the work that you're doing. Like I love. To, to have people on here so we can lift up, um, you know, um, their voice or just expose it to our community. And so I, I, I am so thankful for you. I think voices like you, um, pastors like you, um, they give us hope, you know, seeing you out here. Um, anytime. Just, Invite me back. Um, anytime you want, I'll pull up. I, let listen, me know. I already got a whole plan for your life now. Just okay. <laughs> I was like, I was like, we get, we really got to get you into the academy. Um, um, that is another tool that we're using to help equip um, people um, in the way of the Lord. So it's not just in this work of reconciliation, because this work of reconciliation is the way of the Lord. It is spiritual formation. It is discipleship. And so we want to make sure that, um, you know, um, that your voice is in there. So we'll, we'll definitely be talking with you more. This has been good. Like we could have had two hours, you know, but I know you got another interview that you got to get to because he is, listen, listen, the Reverend Doctor is busy in these streets. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. This, this is a great time and I look forward to talking to you again. I'll tell my son you said hello. Okay, you make sure and then the next time maybe we can do something and have him on here too. Okay, we are that he's a part of at his school. He was a part of Be the Bridge um, Youth, yeah. and so yeah. you know we're I'll we're in some of the schools. So, <laughs> so I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening to the Be the Bridge podcast. To find out more about the Be the Bridge organization and or to become a bridge builder in your community. Go to BeTheBridge.com. Again, that's BeTheBridge.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, remember to rate and review it on this platform and share it with as many people as you possibly can. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Today's show was edited, recorded, and produced by Trayvon Potts at Integrated Entertainment Studios in Metro Atlanta, Georgia. The host and executive producer is Latasha Morrison. Lauren C. Brown is the senior producer. And transcribed by Sarah Knatzer. Please join us next time. This has been a Be The Bridge production.